Welcome to Unlocking the Truth, a podcast by Precept Ministries Canada. Know God deeply and live differently by studying His Word and discovering God's truth for yourself. You are listening to a series called Jesus' Message to the Seven Churches, and it goes through Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Hello everyone, it's Mark Sheldrake, another episode of Unlocking the Truth podcast. So glad to be with you again. Just wanted to give you guys a quick update on the ministry. Those of you listening out there in Canada just came back from a weekend in Calgary, Alberta, Millerville Community Church doing in-person workshops. So good to be with people teaching the inductive Bible study method in church with folks, getting to see their interactions with God's word Uh, to see their faces, no masks or anything like that. And most importantly, to to have some time of fellowship with people, which we haven't really had through our Zoom training. Hopefully uh, in the new year, more in-person training coming. And I want to encourage you that if training is coming to a city near you, that you would uh, get out and participate in that. Because as we see what's happening, uh, it's getting hard for people to come back to training like that. And man, sometimes we're on the verge of wanting to cancel these things. But uh, your attendance can help make these things go on. And you never know who's going to be in that crowd of people getting trained that that training is going to change their life. And they're going to go out and lead Bible study in our country. So uh, make sure that uh, you keep an eye on our website, preceptministries.ca, for training opportunities uh, coming near you. Maybe, just maybe, you're somebody who would want to host in their church. Well, you can contact us because we'd love to tell you about how easy it is to host in-person training at your church. All right, you can call us, uh, 877-234-2030, or email us at training at preceptministries.ca. Well, that's it for our advertisements, folks. Let me pray, and let's get into this week's episode. Father, we do thank you for the time that you have given us to dig into your word today. Lord, another letter from your book of Revelation, a challenging letter to the churches. And Father, this letter has been used multiple times Uh, in sermons and teachings, and Lord, help us to see these truths anew today. As we we give this time to you, we want to glorify you and honor you in all of the things that are said and done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Like I said, I was just uh, in Calgary, and I've got to tell you, um, I don't know if you out there, probably you have, have you ever experienced any problems with dental work? I mean, I had no idea uh, how difficult some dental work can be. And I, for the last month or so, have been fighting some sort of toothache or some sort of issue. And every time I tried to eat, uh, you know, it was very difficult to eat on the one side. But I have to tell you, cold water, oh, cold water touching that tooth of mine just shot pain right into my neck. Hot water was okay, uh, but if it was way too hot, like boiling hot water, like a cup of tea, it shot 
pain through my uh, mouth. And so maybe maybe there's dentists out here listening going, oh, you probably need a root canal. Well, that's probably what's coming down the line, I think. But there, there was no, for me, for the last month, the most difficult thing for me was I couldn't have real cold water. Oh, pain. I couldn't have real hot water. And so I had been uh, drinking lukewarm water. Ugh, lukewarm. There's just no joy in lukewarm water. And that's what I was stuck with. I, If I went to the restaurant and I wanted to have like a Coke Zero or Diet Coke, I'd be like, you can't put ice in it. Please don't put ice in it. It'll be too cold. And if I had a cup of tea, I'd be like, I have to let it sit until all the, the heat comes off it so that I can... I can enjoy enjoy it, and it just was not fun. And uh, that's kind of what we see with the church at Laodicea. And, and we're going to look at this church uh, this week. This is the last of the seven churches that we're going to go through. Next episode, oh man, next episode, I cannot wait to record that. It's going to be uh, all the churches and the promises to the overcomers. But this here, let me just let me just recap where we've been with the seven churches. Okay, we looked at the the revelation itself in chapter 1. We've looked at Ephesus, the backsliding church. We've looked at uh, Smyrna, the suffering church. Pergamos, the worldly church. Thyatira, the unrepentant church. Uh, Sardis, the dying church. Last episode we looked at Philadelphia, the faithful church. But this week, Laodicea, it can carry two titles for this church. And the first title is the one we probably know the most, and that is the lukewarm church. But this church also carries the name as the apostate church. So we're going to look at this church in depth today. Remember the criteria that we look at with these churches. We're going to look at the historical background we're going to look at the name of Jesus. We're going to look at the reproof or the and the, or the condemnation that comes against them. We're going to look at the commendation, what they're doing well, and then we're going to look at the promise to the overcomer. And I have to tell you, this church here uh, is a little bit different than the others. But this church, this one, I pray is that after we've looked at this one and all of them, that again, we line these back, not to the church, but we line them back to ourselves as well. And so keep in mind, as we look at this, Jesus is doing an x-ray of the church, and he sees the church at Laodicea, and it has a serious problem. All right, and so he sees something in this church, and it is not good. But let me go and define the word apostate before we even begin looking at the historical background. Apostate is one who has turned away. Uh, The apostasy signifies the desertion of a post or giving up uh, a state of life. All right, so this is really important because when we hear the word apostasy, uh, we automatically begin to question, uh, like in Second Thessalonians, it says, 
the apostasy must come first. And so this great falling away. And so we have some questions that come out of that. Uh, The apostasy that comes first, is that for those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, uh, will they uh, just up and deny God and walk away? Others might say, well, no, the people who from who are part of the apostate, they were never really saved, and there was no fruit being born out of their relationship or their confession in Jesus Christ, and they were just in the church, playing church, and then when that time of apostasy comes, they just walk away. The interesting thing about this And the interesting uh, part is that I've had conversations with pastors in just the last little while, and they've even questioned and wondered, like, have we seen a type of apostasy occur uh, since the onset of COVID-19? Because where we're at right now is we are in a position where many, many pastors, many, many churches are realizing that there are a ton of people that have not come back to church since churches have opened up. I spoke to one pastor in Alberta this week, and the conversation surrounds whether to stop doing online video streaming of services and put it on YouTube later in the hopes that some of these people who are staying at home and watching would return uh, into the church fellowship. There's just so many uh, interesting things coming out of this pandemic, but one thing is we've seen that those who may not have been fully committed followers of Jesus Christ uh, have not returned, and that's where pastors are starting to wonder what are what are the next steps. All right, so just so we know, one who's turned away, a desert, it's deserting a post or giving up a state of life. All right, so with the church Laodicea, this city is located at a crossroads of two crucial trading routes. In Roman times, it was a prosperous commercial center. It was known for a few things. First, it was known for its banking. All right, it it was a very wealthy place and known for their banking and their textile wool industry, specifically black wool, is what they uh, were known for selling. They also had a medical school there, and the medical school's focus was ophthalmology, and the eye salve was invented in Laodicea. And so this, these three things, you need to keep these in mind as we walk through uh, this church, because Jesus is going to address banking or riches, textile, and ophthalmology as we walk through this letter. Financially strong. This city was so financially strong that when there was an earthquake in AD 60, the city was able to rebuild itself without any outside funding. They had all the money they needed to rebuild their city and move on. Laodicea did not have a proper water supply. This, too, is going to play an important role in our uh, study today. Uh, They were not close to a source of fresh water or fresh cold water that would come from mountain springs, but they also didn't have access 
to any hot springs. So the city of Laodicea had to build an aqueduct to bring in fresh water into the city. Well, what happens as you bring cold, fresh water from the springs and you have to pull it, push it along an aqueduct? Well, usually it would sit in the sun and it would warm up as it got toward the city. And so they would end up having lukewarm drinking water. And so this is where Jesus is going to address this uh, problem in the church. Epaphras shared the gospel with the people of Laodicea. We see that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, and in chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. The letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians was also to be read to the people of Laodicea. All right, and so Paul wrote Colossians 30 to 35 years before John wrote the book of Revelation. And so the book of Colossians is filled with warnings. It's filled with information concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, that in him and through him all things were created, and so Jesus is at the center of all things. And so as this church was supposed to read, the church at Laodicea would read Colossians, they would see some of the warnings that they needed to pay attention to concerning living a life that brings glory and honor to God. All right, so Laodicea plays an important role. It's just not just one of those letters in uh, Revelation. All right, let's dig in and look at uh, this, this chapter verse by verse. To the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now here we're going to get Jesus' description of himself. Uh, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of of the creation of God says this. Now, it's very interesting just to draw quick attention to this. And we'll see this because the letter was to be to be read, the Colossian letter was to be read to the Laodiceans. Paul addresses this right in the beginning of Colossians. He teaches about uh, Jesus at creation. And so let's walk through these names uh, and let's get a better understanding of what Jesus is saying about himself. Okay, so let's look at the first one. He is the amen. And amen means sure and truly. All right, so what he's telling us right in there at the beginning to the church in Laodicea, I am truth. All right, I am infallible truth. I'm without error. And so he starts off that for that very beginning that he says, I am truth the truth. All right, well, is this the first time we've seen Jesus say this? Well, no, he's he said this before. He says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in the Gospel of John. We also see him say that he is the truth in Revelation chapter 22, when he calls himself faithful and true. Have we seen him say anything about being the infallible truth before? Well, yes, in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes through the Father except through me. In Revelation 19, he's known as faithful and true, which we'll 
look at a little bit more in just a minute. All right, so he is the amen. He is surely and true. He's infallible. He is the truth. He also says to the church at Laodicea that he is the faithful and true witness. All right, so witness comes from the root word martis, and it is the one who has information and can bring it to light. All right, it's where we get the word uh, martyr, martyr from. All right, so it is the one who has information and can bring to light. So just in the beginning, just in the beginning of all of this, Jesus says to the church, I am completely trustworthy, perfectly accurate witness to the truth of God. And that is where a huge point for him to make as he looks at this church, because we're going to see the problem in just a few minutes. So Jesus is completely trustworthy, perfectly accurate witness to the truth of God. So let's look at a couple of verses and just break this down and what he's saying. So the first is John chapter 1, uh, verse 18. So in John chapter 1, verse 18, listen to what Jesus uh, tells us in these. Okay, he says, uh, looking at verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. All right, so Jesus uh, explains uh, God. All right, so let me look at another one for you. Is John chapter 14, uh, verses 8 to 12. And we just talked about this a few minutes ago, but in verses 8 to 12, we have that, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it says uh, in verse 8, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to them, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works." Believe uh, me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the work themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also, and the greater works than these, he will do because I go to the Father. What, what Jesus is telling us here is Jesus is bringing attention, all right? He's bringing attention to what he has witnessed in this church, all right? So as he does the x-ray, as the one who is completely trustworthy, he's perfectly accurate, he's a witness to the truth of God, that he also shows the proof of God, he looks into the church, and he's about to bring the truth, and it is time to bubble this truth to the surface for the for the church. Why? Because he's perfectly and accurately true. All right, so he is doing this x-ray of the church. Now, let's look at the next name that comes out of this. All right, so he says that he is uh, the amen. He's the faithful and true witness, and he is the beginning of creation. 
the creation of God. All right, this name here, this part of this beginning of the creation of God, this name is to correct the false teaching that was happening in Laodicea and Colossae that Christ was not the Son of God and he was not uh, there at creation, but he was a created being. Uh, This was the focus of the entire letter of chapter 1 of Colossians, was showing that Jesus Christ is fully God. And it shows his deity that at the beginning of creation, he was with him. Paul says, in him, through him, for him, creation. So this false teaching that was happening in Colossae and Laodicea is what was steering the church into a position of self-reliance versus putting their full trust in Jesus Christ. So you see that as Jesus puts presents these names, he tells you, listen, church, this is who I am. I am the, the one that is sure. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the truth of God. And I am completely and trustworthy. I'm perfectly accurate. And I'm about to tell you what I see in this church. And that brings us to the reproof. The reproof of this church. All right, so there is nothing positive said about this church uh, right away. So let's look at the next verse. Okay, so verse 14 Uh, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. All right, so uh, look what he says in verse 16. Because, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. All right, so the, what he says first is he says, I know your deeds. We have seen this before. We have seen in the church in Philadelphia, I know your deeds. All right, I've also, we've also seen it in the church at Titerian, in Titerian, verse 19, I know your deeds. Uh, he says to the church of Ephesus, I know your deeds. And so he repeats this about I'm looking at the actions of that, what's happening within the church. And usually the actions that are happening in the church are the outcome of what's going on in the heart. And so this church was not cold. All right. So what does it mean to be cold? That means that they were not openly rejecting Jesus as himself or the truth. All right. So they weren't openly saying, Jesus is not the Son of God, that we completely reject Jesus. They were not hot, so they were not filled with excitement and passion for the things of Jesus, but they were lukewarm. This lukewarm, it meant that they were actually useless for the kingdom of God because they were complacent. They were self-satisfied. And they were indifferent to the real issues of the faith in Jesus and discipleship. (laughs) So imagine if you are one who has a great zeal for the Lord, 
Well, Paul described his zeal for the Lord, and look what he did in his ministry. He sacrificed a lot. He sacrificed his body for the ministry. He showed his great love in standing before uh, great rulers and proclaiming the gospel, knowing that great persecution was going to come. And these folks here, they're really complacent about the whole thing. They're not on passion. They're not passionate about God's word. They're not fired up about being obedient to his word. They are people who are so focused on satisfying themselves internally that they're not really paying attention to what's happening in the community around them. They're not happen- paying attention to what's happening in their own faith, and they're not growing in their discipleship and sanctification because they're self-satisfied. They're meeting all of their own needs without focusing on anything else. I remember seeing a YouTube video a few years ago, and it was called Me Church. And I got a good laugh out of it because there was some conversations with the pastor, and everything revolved around me. Oh, what time's the service? Oh, 9.30. Uh, I like to sleep in on Sunday, so I don't really want to be there at that. T- could, could you change it to 10.30? Because we don't really want the service at 11, because then we're not out of church by 1, and my afternoon's all gone. You know, that kind of, what can the church do for me versus what can I do for the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, These people were just so focused on themselves. One scholar described the complacency of this church, and he said, The church was filled with hypocrites, people who professed Jesus Christ, but did not actually belong to them. Okay, that is an important thing to focus on for a moment. Because this is, again, back to the discussion of the apostasy. So are these people that are in this church really saved? Are they people who have just professed Jesus with their mouth, but in their deeds and in their actions, there's no fruit that comes from their relationship with Jesus? So is this just merely an arm raised, an aisle walked, a profession of faith in Jesus, but no further action taken? Well, it seems to indicate here, as we'll walk through, that this church uh, is going to draw out on one end of this argument more than the other. But we don't want to jump ahead, right? We don't want to. Oh, we could jump ahead, but we don't want to jump ahead. We want to, we want to look at this as we go. Uh, it's important to make, make a note. Let's look at this uh, next verse, okay? So he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. Plenty of debate that comes around the second part of this verse, because If Jesus has a heart, and Peter says that he wishes none to perish, but all to come to eternal life, is Jesus' heart, at the heart of what he's saying in these verses, is he really saying that he would prefer people be cold and rejecting him and destined for wrath 
versus being hot? That's not what Jesus is telling us. It's important to note here that Jesus is not wishing that the church were spiritually cold. Because for us, what we think about in 2022, maybe we've been thinking about this for a while, but spiritually cold to us might indicate uh, unsaved or not passionate about God and his word. All right? That uh, this, the idea of spiritually cold for the audience at this time, the idea of spiritually cold or not passionate would be a foreign idea to them at that time. We know these terms, and so we look and we can say, well, spiritually cold means that we're not passionate. Hot means that we are super passionate. But that's not what would be fully understood in the terms for this church. All right, what Jesus is telling us here is that the idea and the principle is the lukewarm versus the hot and cold. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying, because you are lukewarm, lukewarm water is disgusting. Some of you might go to battle with me on that, but I'm going to tell you that uh, when I was doing my Ironmans and I was training for the marathons that I was running a few years ago before COVID, that when you are running the race, and a lot of these Ironman and half Ironman races that are run, they run them at crazy times of the year. And I was doing one in June, and it was 30 degrees outside. And when we're running, first we swim uh, two kilometers, then we bike for 90 kilometers, and then they want you to run 21.1 kilometers, and you start that at lunchtime, the hottest part of the day, depending on how fast you are. And you see, when we were running these, these Ironman races, when we would go to the drink table, we would listen out for the call. They'd yell Gatorade at the first table, water at the second table. And what we would do is we would grab the Gatorade and we would take the Gatorade and we would drink it in. And then we would take the cold ice water and we would, ju- we would dump it over our heads because it was so refreshing. It was so good to be able to pour that on our heads and to cool us down. Some marathons and Ironmans, they put sponges in cold water so that you can tuck them in the back of your shirt and squeeze water down as you are um, you're getting really hot. And so cold water is meant to be a real refreshing thing. But you see, any visitor that would go to Laodicea and they were used to saying, hey, would you like a drink of water? Any other place, that water might have been cold and refreshing and, and really good. And yet when they drank it in Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And often visitors would spit it out. Ugh, what is this? My brain tells me cold water, but this is warm water. I don't want this stuff. 
And you see, that's what Jesus is saying to this church. He's focusing in on the lukewarm, which is, a, it's, not, it's not refreshing, all right? Uh, it's not that great for us, all right? And so, so he's telling us, he says, I'd rather you be cold and refreshing water, you know, something that energizes me and brings me to life. But no, you're you're not hot water. You're not cold water. Because what does hot water do? Well, hot water is really good, and it can be like from the hot springs, great hot water from the hot springs. When we visited uh, Banff in the summertime, my daughter and I went into the hot springs. Hot, hot, hot water. And man, when you're done running a marathon, or you're done running an Ironman, there's nothing greater than getting into a hot bath with Epsom salts and praying that all that pain, all that lactic acid, and all that stuff goes away. And we know that even in Bible times, hot springs were used for the purposes of healing and just to work on the body. And so Jesus tells us, man, I'd rather you be cold and refreshing and and good to the palate on a hot day. Or I'd rather you be hot, hot as can be, because hot water is for healing and just soothing of the body. But no, you know what? You serve no purpose as lukewarm water. You're disgusting. It's not good. I'd rather spit you out. And so the idea that we look at and we say, oh, you're cold. When we look at spiritual uh, coldness, that's, that's not accustomed to them. This is looking at the water and saying that you're not good for quenching thirst and you're not good for bringing healing to the body. <clears throat> so, Jesus is uh, saying, I'd rather spit you out. So I'd rather you be cold and refreshing, <laughs> cold and refreshing in your, in your faith for me. Or I'd rather you be hot, healing of the body and feeling good and soothing, but know you're lukewarm. So let's not get lost that this is Jesus saying, I would rather you be spiritually cold. That's not what he's saying here. He, he wants us to be uh, refreshing or hot, hot, which brings healing to the body. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of the mouth. Which brings us really to, to the problem here. And the problem is in verse 17. And if we look and we see that this church was complacent and self-satisfied and indifferent to Jesus and his word, listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not need of nothing. I mean, whoa, I almost read too far there. We, we just got to stop. We've got to look at that verse by itself. And we've got to see just that first part of this because he's saying, this is what you say, church. You say you're rich. 
that you've become wealthy and you don't need anything. Hmm. Well, if you think back to the history, what happened in 60 AD when the church, when the, when the city was destroyed by an earthquake? They were rich. They didn't need outside help to rebuild their city. They had all the money they needed in their bank accounts. And they could do it themselves. Wouldn't there be great reward in thinking, wow, that city was destroyed by earthquake and we built it without any help. <laughs> we, we see this as our children. They, they grow from great dependence on, our, on their parents. And there's just that one point. There's that one point in the child's life where they say to you, I don't need your help with this. Let me do it myself. Right? This is a natural thing that happens in the in the life of an individual. There's there's points where we begin to rely on others. We we heavily rely. I need help. I need help to to be fed. I cry out and scream because I can't make food. I'm too I'm too small. So I become very dependent on the source of who's gonna give me the food. But man, when I learn how to use the microwave and open the macaroni and cheese, the craft dinner, and wait a second, I thought this was hard, Mom. You mean all I have to do is put a scoop of butter, a little bit of milk, and stir in that powdered cheese, and I've got dinner? I can do that. And that's what this church was saying. And this church was saying, look, I've got it. I've got money. <laughs> I can solve my problems with the money I have. They were saying, you know, I have become wealthy. I, I built this up. I, I've done this. It's by my hard work and the things that I've done that have made me wealthy. And you know what? I don't need anybody and I don't need anything in this world because I've got it all. I mean, pause, stop, think right now. Isn't that what we're seeing happen in the world right now? Isn't that something that we have seen uh, throughout, really, since the beginning of time? Is we have people who are building themselves up and up and up and they're saying, I don't need anything. Just this week, somebody into the building and one of our staff members talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing the importance of needing God. This man was homeless and living on the streets. And he said, you know what? All I need is myself. That's it. Well, this, this is what the church is saying. I got it all. There's nothing that I can't solve on my own. We tend to think about this as believers as well because we don't want to just address the people outside in the church. But how often is it that we see problems that we have come up in our life and our circumstances and we say, you know what, that one is small enough for me to handle and I'll just bring the big ones to God. Isn't it something that we should maybe bring all things to God? Even the littlest decisions to the Lord? It's interesting. My wife Jessica and I, we've been 
we, ha- we have a son who has autism and we've been thinking about the future. And we've been thinking about what should we do because our son is turning 18. He's becoming, he's, well, he is a man. I think, think for him the, the independence of shaving on his own is proof of that. Woo, that was great. However, we've been thinking whether Ethan, our son, will he be uh, a contributing factor to the working world? That's a question that we have asked since he was diagnosed with autism. Will he have an impact somewhere in the working world? A.K.A. will he have a job? Will he be able to sustain himself uh, and be able to, hmm, I don't know, get married, live on his own, have children? All of these things. These are the questions that parents of special needs children ask. And so we've been thinking along the lines. We've thought to ourselves, you know what? It's quite possible that our son is going to live with us for a very long time. And is the house that we're currently living in going to be able to meet the needs of a person like our son, Ethan, to be able to have some independence in his life versus living in the same bedroom that he moved into in 2005 at the year of at one year of age. Like these are the things that we have pondered and we've thought about it for a really long time. The, the solution could be that we don't present this before the Lord. We could just go and we could put our house up for sale and shop for a house and do all of this within our own independence. But Jessica and I, we took this to the Lord in prayer and we said, "Here, God, we're not putting stipulations on this, but we want to follow your lead in determining whether we should be making this step. I don't know if you've checked the housing economy right now. It's not great to sell your house and it's not great to buy a house. But should we be following in what we believe you leading us to do, which is find a place that Ethan will be able to live in independently along with us that if he needs help, he can find us at the right time. And so we took that to the Lord. And we've been teaching both our daughter and our son, and we've said, if this does not run smoothly, okay, I'm not talking about, you know, everything's got to be perfect, But if all the pieces of the puzzle don't come together and there's like things that we have to force through and push through to make happen on our own, it's not of God. But if all the puzzle pieces come together and it starts to connect where your house goes up for sale and you find a house and all these things start happening regardless of the market and the interest rates and all those outliers, that if God wants it to happen, it will come to fruition. And just the day I'm recording this, the house that we thought God was moving us toward expires in the conditional offer because we were not able to sell our house. And Jessica and I looked at each other and said, this is not of God. We're not going to walk outside of what God has planned for us. We're not going to force it through in self-independence, but we are going to rely heavily on God. Do you see what the church is doing here? 
<laughs> I had a conversation with my realtor about this whole thing, and my realtor is is uh, uh, her father attends our church, and she said, "But don't you love the house? Don't you love the house so much?" And I said, "Do you know what?" I said, "I don't." I mean, we really like the house. But as a Christian, I'm going to put my love for God above any love for something that's material. And I'd rather be obedient to God than force through to have that house. So no, I don't love it more than I love the Father. Probably sitting back listening to this going, oh, well, that sounds really, really perfect. <laughs> Let me just tell you right now, it was a wrestling through sleepless nights over determining whether God was making this happen or not. But this church, this church says, I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. I don't need even what I think is a strong relationship with God. We're going to see this right here. Verse 17. I say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Remember? Remember the x-ray. We, we've talked about this over the number of weeks, how we look at the outside. We might see the fancy clothes. We might see the big houses. We might see the sweet cars. We might see all this beauty and go, oh my goodness, absolutely, that person's rich. They've got everything they need. But Jesus looks at the heart of the individual. He looks at the heart of the church, and he says, you are, you are um, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, wow. That's the x-ray. But listen to what he says next. He tells them that the church needs to buy three things from Jesus. He says, I need you to buy from me gold, in verse 18, refined by fire, so that you may become rich I need you to buy white garments so that you will clothe yourselves that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I need you to buy an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Well, we got to pause here and we got to go back. We got to back up. We got to back up to the historical aspects of this church. This church was known for its wealth and its banking. And Jesus tells them he's got to buy fine gold from them. And what Jesus is talking about here is he is talking about spiritual gold. He's talking about salvation. And he says that if you buy spiritual gold, if you buy me gold, Pure gold, refined from the fire. The so that is the term of conclusion that you might become rich. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he says, The proof of faith is more precious than gold. He's looking at this church and he's saying, I want you to be saved. 
so that you will have spiritual richness, not just coins in your pocket. Look at the next thing he says of the three things. First is by spiritual gold refined by gold refined by the fire. Buy it for me, Jesus. He says, buy for me white garments. Well, we've seen, we've looked at this in previous episodes of the podcast, The Importance of White Garments. But in Revelation 19.8, what what does Revelation 19.8 say regarding the white garments? Okay, he says in verse uh, verse 6, I then heard something like a voice of the multitude, like a sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The church has made herself ready. Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, white garments. For the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What did he say? I know your deeds. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. That I wish you were hot or cold. He wants to see, as a part of salvation, fruit. He wants to see the fruit of true salvation, of this gold in the church's life, that they're truly saved. What's the third thing he wants them to buy? Uh, He wants them to buy an eye salve to anoint their eyes. Well, what what was Laodicea known for? Their richness? their textile and black wool for clothing, and they were known for ophthalmology. The eye salve was invented there. And what he says is, I want you to buy spiritual light to go from darkness into light. He wanted the church to open their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. So we go back and we quickly address the apostate church. And what Jesus is telling us is that the people in this church were never really saved. That they were people who professed with their mouth, but there was no fruit the proof of salvation, that they were spiritually blinded by their own wealth and their own richness and their own dependence upon themselves. He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and Repent. We know that in this passage, in this, in the in God's word, really, we know that there is a reproving of those he loves. There is a disciplining of those he loves. 
But here also in verse 19, it tells us that not only is there reproving and disciplining for believers in Jesus Christ, but it tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That God has a great love and hope that the unbelievers will come to repentance. The word reprove is to bring a conviction. It's to bring people to the point of conviction and realizing their need for change. And so Jesus says, those whom I love, I bring correction and I judge. And so what is he saying? He's, he's saying, I, I, my prayer is that you will repent and become zealous and passionate and fruit-bearing for the kingdom of God. Because if you don't, judgment is coming. Verse 20 is a verse that you and I, as believers in Jesus, if we've been in the Christian world for a long time, we have heard verse 20. And I'll read it for you, and then let's let's look at how this has been taught in the past, and let's look at what Jesus is really saying. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Well, we've heard this verse many times as one of those uh, gospel calls where Jesus is at the door. And all you have to do is open the door of your heart and he will come in. You've heard that before? You've heard this verse taught this way? I think we need to look at this verse in a completely different way. And here's what we need to look at this verse for. Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, where is he? Who's he sending this letter to? And what is he doing? All right, let's, let's, let's break this down. Jesus is writing to the church at Laodicea. Well, where is he? Where is he right now? Okay, according to the verse. <laughs> um, he's on the outside. He's on the outside of the church. Do you see what he's doing? I stand at the door and knock. What does he want? He wants in to the church. Well, yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what I've always been taught, Mark. I've been taught that he stands at the door of my heart and he wants, he wants in. No, no, folks, listen very carefully. Jesus is not the one who is like a homeless man standing at the door asking for a place to stay tonight. The church door that he's knocking on 
is his house. It's his house. And he's come back to his house. And when he gets to his house, he's expecting his servants to be attentive and ready to answer the door. But he's knocking and knocking and knocking, and those who say they are his servants are not opening the door. You see, Jesus is the master of the house, and he wants in his house, but there's no one opening the door. And so he says this. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. You see, what Jesus is looking for is he's looking for one person to recognize where they are spiritually and open the door so Jesus can come in to his house. I stand at the door and knock. If one person realizes that they are completely bankrupt. You see, the things that Jesus is offering to sell to us, nothing can buy those things. We can't buy gold refined by fire. We can't buy salvation We can't buy white garments or have righteous deeds. That is the outflow of our salvation. We can't buy spiritual awakening. You see, this church said, I've got money, I've got wealth. But Jesus says, you can't buy any of this. But it's there for you. It is the gift. You can't earn it. You can't do anything but believe in Jesus and call on his name and completely turn your life around and be zealous for him. Stand at the door and knock. Will one person recognize their spiritual bankruptcy? Would one person respond and say they believe? And if one person responds and says, yes, he will enter the church. These people were completely dependent on themselves. They had all the money. They had all the riches. They had all the wealth. They didn't need God. And yet Jesus shows their complete bankruptcy and says, open the door. Be saved. Bear fruit. 
Have your eyes open to the truth. Just need one of you to recognize that, and I will enter into that church. Let's look at the final part, the promise that comes. And he says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with me on my father's, and my father on his throne. You know what the promise is? We're going to look at all these promises next week, so I'm not going to hang in there with this for a really long time, but this is all figured over the very fact that one day we will reign with him. That when Jesus is on his throne, to those who overcome will reign with him. And he ends this with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, listen. It's more than just hearing. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, listen and take action. So maybe you, maybe you are one who is in the church and you're spiritually bankrupt. Maybe you've been listening through the seven churches and thinking, man, I don't know if I'm really saved. I think I've just been playing church. Go buy from Jesus. Buy the gold. Come to the Lord. Repent of your sin. Ask him to be Lord over your life. Die to yourself and begin to live for Jesus. <laughs> well, well, that's what every pastor says, but here's what I'm going to tell you. Folks, if you have battled that idea and you have struggled through whether or not you are truly saved, if you've been living the lukewarm life, I want to encourage you to go to our website, preceptministries.ca, and buy the Bible study on 1 John. You can either buy the 40-minute Bible study, How Do You Know God's Your Father? Or you can buy 1 John, Precept Upon Precept. If money is a, a struggle in these difficult days of inflation, take the book of 1 John and read through it and put a K over every reference to the word no. And then go back and list out all of those no's. And when you see those no's, begin to ask yourself, is that me? So many people have studied 1 John and realized, I'm lukewarm. I'm not really saved. And I need to get my heart right with Jesus. You see, God is calling us to be wholly devoted to him. Those of you brothers and sisters who have been believers for a really long time, are you zealous for God? Are you growing in your faith? Are you bearing fruit for the kingdom? This is what Jesus calls us to do. And here we are at the end of the seven churches. And at the end of the seven churches, we can see that every one of these churches applies to the days that we live in now. 
But there are promises that are come to those who overcome. And I cannot wait to look at those in our final episode of the seven churches. Father, we do thank you for the time. Again, Lord, thank you for this technology. We thank you for the people who are listening. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in their lives, that you would you would challenge them to, to look in the mirror, to let them see their own x-ray of their heart. And Lord, I pray that they would be people who would be zealous for you, that their deeds would show the fruit of their salvation, that they would have a hunger for your word, and that our kingdom, your kingdom would grow throughout Canada. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are so grateful you joined us in today's episode of Unlocking the Truth, the podcast by Preset Ministries Canada. Visit our website, presetministries.ca, to get more details on the 2023 Holy Land Tour and be sure to register for an upcoming summer workshop, whether in person or online. You will find one that best suits where you are in your precept journey. Know God deeply, live differently.